Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 222 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by a photographer living in France and originally from the United Kingdom, Julian Elliott. Julian and I discuss a wide variety of topics this week, including the advantages of generalizing across many forms of photography versus sticking to just one, Julian's thoughts and experiences in collaborating with other photographers, respecting new cultures and getting the most out of your travel experiences, and a lot more. Over on Patreon this week, Julian talks about stock photography, and we share experiences in fighting copyright infringers for revenue that are due to us. Really fun. (laughs) Well, before we get started, I wanted to let listeners know that there is still time to enter the Natural Landscape Photography Awards. We are accepting entries until August 31st, 2021, and we are looking forward to seeing your awesome submissions and are very close to reaching our goal to fund the Fine Art Coffee Table book that will hopefully accompany the competition. Cheers to those of you who have already entered. Just a quick warning, I just moved into a new house and in my new home office there is a really bad echo. But using funds from Patreon, I've ordered some soundproofing materials to help out with this problem. So thank you to those of you that support the show. I hope to have this problem resolved quickly. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Julian Elliott, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Morning. Or evening, depending on the time zone you live in. Depending on your time zone you're in. Yeah, you're uh, what, 2 a.m.? It's 2 a.m. and maybe as this recording is going along, you'll hear this kind of, uh, as we've just been laughing, Black Sabbath soundtrack as there's a, a an electrical storm going on outside right now. So hopefully nothing's going to happen while we're recording this. That's brilliant. Well, hopefully your computer doesn't get fried over the podcast. Um. <laughs> Shh. <Hope not. laughs> I just put it out there into the universe. So I'll, t- I'll take it back. I'll take it back. Well, cool. So, so Julian, um, for people that aren't familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I basically, um, I mean, I'm 46 and I'm originally from the city of Salisbury, which is in southern England. So Salisbury is famous for its uh, Gothic cathedral, huge Gothic cathedral, actually very big cathedral for quite a smallish city. And then just up the road for you music fans is Stonehenge. So that's about 10 miles north of Salisbury. And um, I basically, when I grew up, I never really knew what I wanted to do. I'm sure we all remember those kind of days in school. It's like, what would you like to do with yourself, young sir? It's like, I don't know. Well, I do remember early on when I was a kid, my parents were horrified or my mum and grandparents were horrified when I said I wanted to be a pavement artist. So you can imagine how well that went down. Um, so maybe the creative streak was there. I mean, I could, I could draw as a kid as far as copying, um, stuff. And it's interesting actually, because my aunt was a graphic designer on my dad's side. So it's kind of in there. And actually my daughter now I'm married with two kids. My daughter is very artistic. She loves drawing. And, uh, the other day we were actually in the supermarket and here in France, um, Comic books are actually really big in France. And in the supermarket the other day, there were some um, authors. And one of them was an author of the comic book. And my kids were playing up and doing as kids what to, you know, kids doing what kids do. And um, so I took her over to the artist and he said, hey, you know, do you want me to show you how to draw a few things? And I thought, oh, this would be interesting. And she copied him like note for note, as it were. Huh. And he's like, wow. 
So that was cool to see that. That's very it's cool. kind of interesting to see it sort of running sort of along that family line, as it were. Yeah. So, yeah, so I grew up in Salisbury. I never really knew what I wanted to do. Ended up in various office jobs, got in various bits of trouble in my office jobs because I'm somebody <laughs> that, <laughs> that um, it's like, you know, oh, you need to do this today. It's like, really? That's, you know, I don't really need you to tell me what it is I need to do today. I kind of know what I need to do in my job. So you, um, you do you do kind of look like a troublemaker a little bit. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the last sort of one of the last the last two jobs I had, um, you know, it's like oh, you're negative. It's like no, it's because what I'm trying to do is look at how you're working and think why are we working like this and just want to improve it. And I do it in my own job, you know, when I'm doing as a photographer. You're there and you're thinking, you know, how do I improve what it is that I'm doing? And you must always, as a photographer, be thinking, well, how do, how is it that I can improve myself? So I'm a self-taught photographer. Um, although in my home city of Salisbury, there used to be in uh, the technical college a very good photography department. Now, a lot of British photographers, if there's anybody from Britain listening, will know the name Charlie Waite. If you look at Charlie Waite's history – he actually did some or all of his training in my local technical college, which was Salisbury Technical College. I never went, but I do know from people that I, I had actually met um, when I was in that college doing other stuff, that there's been some very good photographers that went through there. Um, but I'm always kind of challenging myself. So at the moment, one of the things I'm doing is actually learning studio photography hmm. and learning lighting and strobes because it's yeah. quite cool. Uh, that that just became about because of a potential job offer of doing something else, not studio work, but actually interior work and using strobes. And I just thought, well, let's actually work out how you do it properly and not try to fudge it. Um, and I think it's really good for photographers to just say, do you know what? I do love doing landscape photography, which is what I was my first love, but let's try something else. There's actually really, you know, um, Brian, not you don't want to become a jack of all trades, but I think it's good to understand lighting in a variety of ways um, because you just never know what job offers might come off the back of that. So there's a job I've actually got to do in a few weeks' time whereby they are actually asking potentially for some outdoor portraiture, which means taking off-camera flash with me yeah. to then create those images, those potential images. So yeah. I mean, luckily I've got two kids, which means you can rope them in to be models. Now the trade-off for me is I have to hand my camera to my kids to take my picture. And oh, then of course. Ends. So you get that kind of, you know, you need to to play the game with the kids. As it were. But it's good because then it gets them involved in my work. Yeah, no, I did the same thing a couple of months ago with my son who's 13. I set up all my external flash, you know, softbox, light stand and, yeah. And trigger, you know, uh, remote triggers, and and had him take take my picture, and he thought that was pretty fun. I think and actually, is. actually, just did a wedding where I had to hike like five miles and carry on my lighting gear up there and do wedding photos way up in <laughs> like twelve thousand feet elevation. <laughs> wow! I mean, it's it's um, at the weekends. Um, I said there was a, a photograph I wanted to do locally of an old mill that's on the River Loire. It's on the, no, it's not on the, on the Loire. It's on the Cher. And um, I 
said to my kids, oh, um, there's a photograph I'd really like to do today with, and if you want to come with me, you can do. And I said, oh, is that the one um, where you promised to show us the Milky Way? And I thought, no, that's not really the one I was wanting to show you. We really want to see the Milky Way. Okay, two and a half hour drive to get to somewhere that I'd wanted to do. It didn't really work out, but it was good to go and sort of recce and just see anyway. Sure. Um, but they were happy and seeing, well, I'm going to say they, my daughter was happy to kind of, I was in the driving seat of the car, half asleep. She was half asleep in the passenger seat. My son, after we did the sunset, and I'd actually got a decent sunset this location for the first time in ages, because um, I kind of missed it the last time I was there. I sort of had the, the afterglow. Um, my son, we just walked back from sunset. He's like, oh, Papa, yes. I want to go back home. Like, oh, come <laughs> on. Seriously, you've asked to see the Milky Way. I'm tired. I want to go home. <laughs> so uh. it's like, let's vote on it, okay? So eventually, um, I, <laughs> I've i been teasing him about all the girls in his class because my boy's got his girlfriend. So, oh, But there's also other, other girls that um, he actually finds quite irritating. So I was teasing him about that and i said to him i tell you what i'll promise not to tease you about the girls um if you if you go to sleep a little bit and then we'll go and, and see the stars and he's like oh okay and if you tease me again you have to buy me something okay wow he's <laughs> so he's, he's got trained pretty good now yeah he's learned don't worry <laughs> well cool so, man uh, you said something earlier that I thought <clears throat> would be an interesting side side conversation. And you said you don't want to be a jack of all trades, and I was. I think there's a lot of debate around that, around you know specialization versus generalization. I'd be curious, as someone who does photography full time, kind of what's your what's your take on that approach? I think when you're doing it full time, you've got to be willing to branch out. You've got to because something is going to come along whereby, um, I mean, I have actually turned down a job, was it last year or the year before, whereby I think it was a Polish company phoned me to say there is a touring musician that's going to be in your local city and um, we need to recreate this particular style of imagery. Can you do it? And it was studio photography. And I had to say no, because it wasn't my bag that I work with natural lights did I wait for the light? And there you go, job lost. Yeah. So um, I think when you, you're just doing this for your hobby, then do you really need to be branching out? I think if you'd want just to, you know, uh, improve yourself to just understand more things, then yes. But you don't necessarily need to. You can just follow your your passion. But when you're doing it full time, you've got to be prepared. I mean, I, for example, I did a job in 2019, um, which was part of what I loved doing, which was cityscape and architecture, more architecture for a guy up in Amsterdam. But the guy owned a pancake restaurant. And so I had to photograph people at work making pancakes. Right. That's not, but it's kind of, I call myself a landscape and travel photographer. Right. It kind of, I guess, fits in maybe the travel side because, you know, I've traveled up to Amsterdam and it's people at work. I actually like photographing people at work. 
but when I if I can help it, I don't like them to pose. Right. I kind of like people to just get on with it. Yeah. And I find it's a lot more natural. Right. So um, I one of the earliest ones that I did actually in my career was a baker in the city of Tours near to where I live. And I got lots of photographs in two minutes because it was a very dynamic shoot because they were just making bread and doing what they were doing. And there's flour flying everywhere. Yeah, there's flour going everywhere. (laughs) And And it's actually pretty cool because not long after that, I was asked to do a painter because I was trying to get some images for a proposed book. And they needed sort of, they needed to see that I could photograph people in their natural environment. Mm-hmm. So I photographed an artist and it was so slow going. You know, it took a few hours to get the images, but did it. It didn't, the commission never ever happened, which was a shame. But yeah, I think you kind of need to, as you, if you're doing this full time, be prepared for anything. I mean, somebody said to me once on a Facebook group that I'm on, he said, oh, you, you know, you wouldn't take any job. And it's like, I think you need to really think that over. It's like, I will take a job if it's within my skill set to do it. Yeah, so, and, the money's right, and the money's right. Well, yeah, I mean, if the money's right as well and you know that you can do it. I mean, it's like um, at the moment, um, I love seeing some of the fashion photographers and seeing how they're creating stuff with studio strobes and learning. Um, with my kids, we did the project actually on my birthday that I filmed for my YouTube channel, creating V-flats, studio V-flats out of polystyrene. And, um, you know, got them to help me paint them. And then, you know, you get a, a single strobe with a V-flap, point the strobe towards the V-flap white side, and then it just creates this high-key fashion image. Very simple. Gotcha. Yeah. But, you know, it's something that a year ago I never would have thought about doing, but it's, like, kind of cool. And then taking everyday objects to create lighting patterns. So, right. like, just by the side of me, there's a, a colander which has got a very kind of interesting spiral pattern. You go outside with hard light with the sun reflecting on my daughter and you get this pattern all over her face. Right. Or finding a stencil or finding blinds, Venetian blinds where you can create these patterns. And so, yeah, like you, I'm also self-taught. And I think the only class I ever paid money for was a external flash strobe, strobe class. And I feel like that's, money well spent because you know the more you learn about light and how it works and how it shapes objects and different angles of light i think that just makes you a better photographer in general whether you're shooting natural light or you're shooting landscapes or whatever so i think i think that's spot on well it's like applying um strobe photography to off-camera flash to exterior balancing the ambient light and then creating something a bit more you know and I, i did a one of my daughter couple of weeks ago where I just took an umbrella outside, put it on the stand and fired a flash into it. It was okay. Then fired a studio strobe into it. It was a lot, you know, a lot more powerful. It was a Gaydox AD 300. And the clarity in that image that I have of my daughter was just like, wow, it really shined. So I just basically got a, you know, an umbrella on a stand, fired the flash into the, the strobe into the umbrella, which bounced back onto my daughter. It's like, wow, cool. It's just such a, you know, the quality of the, and I didn't do anything to the photograph, just in-camera quality of it was like, wow, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, and you can use different angles to get different effects. And, yeah, it's 
I don't know. I think that's it for any type of photographer. I feel like studying external flash is, I, I learned originally by, um, I think it's strobis.com. Yes. I've heard of that. Yeah. I think it's David hobby. He's been running that website for like two decades now or something. It's like on Blogspot still, <laughs> <laughs> but it's really good stuff. It's, you know, like yeah, everything you need to know to get started and you only have to spend like, hundred two hundred dollars you know you can got like have a really good kit yeah i mean it's i think this is the thing i mean it's like um i've got a godox 8300 and two godox v862 uh flash guns and um i mean i was actually lucky a couple of weeks ago because i got one of them used off of ebay for half the price less than half the price of what it was you new and it is new the lady bought it didn't need it and it was still boxed still had all the cellophane over it. And it's like, cool. It was like, got it shipped <laughs> nice. over from Italy and, you know, it, but it, you know, creating this, creating the artificial light is interesting. Seeing like the, the lighting patterns. I know we're supposed to be talking about landscape and travel photography, but it's, yeah. they really should expand how it is that um, you look at things. I mean, actually where I'm from in Salisbury was painted by the, the artist Constable, John Constable. And when I was growing up, my parents had a copy of um, the Haywayne, I think it was. was it the Hay- yeah, I think they had the Haywayne, which was just in the dining room. And um, eventually, when it, early on in my photography career, I got talking to um, the, the people that run the water meadows in West Harnham, where Constable actually painted. And one day I had a talk. Um, I was invited to a talk on the water meadows, and they explained how the water meadows work got talking to somebody and um, they said, you know, maybe when, if you were in another age, you would have been a painter. So one of the very first photographs I sold was a Salisbury Cathedral across the water meadows with the sheep in the, in the water meadows. They, they like, they rented out to different farmers and um, you know, a few people have said to me, you know, it just looks like painting the way you, it was. And I guess that formed a very early part of my style. Um, of trying and because I can draw in so far as copy a picture, but can't do like my daughter does. She's better than me at drawing of create something out of her head. I can kind of do it, but I'm really bad. So I like using that sort of light within the landscape to create that painterly look. You know, you get up in the morning and you see the the mist rolling across the landscape, the early morning light, and they're just sort of waiting for the light as well. People don't wait. People just don't want to wait, you find. Now, a lot of people say, what do you do to your photographs? And you think, well, not a lot, actually. It doesn't need it if you wait for the light to hit the subject. It's yeah. just there. Patience what? and perseverance. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, it's, but people just, I, I mean, I remember being in Provence. It must have been, what, four years ago now, maybe? Three, four years ago. And there's a famous field of lavender with two oh, trees in the background. And um, I remember sort of looking at it and thinking, no, this just isn't right for sunset. I met a few photographers there because it was, you know, that time of year. And, um, you know, one of the things that didn't please me is there's two trees at the end of the field and you have to clone out the telephone lines because they're a very big distraction. I don't like doing stuff like that, but you have to to just make, you know, it's one of those ones that it's, uh, I break my own rules. Um, but but <laughs> met a photographer and he's just talking about stripping in a new sky and stuff like that. 
And it's kind of like, really? You don't, why, why do that? And it's actually that particular location as you're going up to the Plateau de Valentol is actually more a, um, a morning location, a sunrise location because of the, the angle of the sun in the morning is basically 90 degrees to that lavender field. And it works far better in the morning than in the evening. But people just don't want to, to work this stuff out. They'd rather go, oh, it's a, you know, it's a crap sky. Let's put it in another sky. It's like, why? Well, Seriously. We've, we talk about that a lot on this podcast. <laughs> I, I don't understand. I mean, it's like at the moment, if it wasn't um, the middle of the night, I mean, obviously there's a fun, well, it seems to have passed now, the thunderstorm. Um, you know, it's like storm light. You know, there's a storm going on. If you can see it's going to clear, the light that appears after a storm is just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. When suddenly things calm down, the clouds open, and suddenly that light that just rakes across the landscape is just like godly. It's just beautiful. Oh, it's beautiful magic. Light. But again, people just go, I mean, early on, um, when I was learning photography, I was basic because I couldn't drive actually until I was like 33, 34. I didn't need to, is I would go and practice my landscape photography on the water meadows in, you know, between Salisbury and West Harlem. The amount of beautiful mornings that I would see people walking across the town path from West Harlem to Salisbury. And you would see, for example, like the early morning mist and the light coming through the back of the cathedral well, it will be coming through the eastern side of the cathedral and it beams a light to the cathedral. And people will just sort of look to their right and go, yeah, and carry on because they haven't got the time. And it, it's uh, interesting that people even, you know, it's, it, they just don't stop to admire the light because I, yeah. I, maybe it's just our time that we are in a, in a, a period of our t- lives, as it were, whereby – we don't physically have the time anymore like we used to. Well, you know, there's there's too many distractions. I feel like you make time for the things that are important to you and experiencing beautiful, natural things like that. I, I, I have time for that. (laughs) I think when you're a photographer, it's different, but I think it's because you see the world entirely differently to everybody else and how you, you know, you look at stuff and people go, how do you know there's a picture there? It's like, you just know. You can see it. And I, a lot of the time when I'm doing my photography talks, there's um, a picture that I do and I'm doing a talk on Mongolia of the back of a monk whereby I was in a temple in Erdandale, which is just not on any tourist destination for Mongolia, but it's just happened to be where one of our drivers was from. And um, I get to that point in the talk and I say to people, very often I think, you know, if I'm going somewhere at the weekend, I will sit and plan, where am I going? And this particular photograph, I saw it very, very quickly because you're tuned into photos when you're doing this all the time. You can see things very, very quickly. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, people need to understand it is a job at the end of the day. It's like going to work. If you go to work in the office, you're going, today I need to do this and that, or I need to call them back and and so on. And so you go through that mental checklist in your head of things that you need to do. And it's the same when you're a photographer. You sort of arrive on the scene and you can you go, oh, there's that. I need to be aware that there's that. 
and that and oh there's maybe somebody over there that could be irritating if you're doing a, like a cityscape that you know you sort of you become aware of your surroundings so you sort of go through this mental checklist absolutely so, so sometimes it's very quick sometimes it's very slow yeah well, not to change topics, but it's mm. it's definitely related to this. You know, you know, you've been a you've been into photography for for quite a long time, and you've seen the industry shift quite a bit in that time. Yeah. I was wondering if you could could tell us about your thoughts on how the public sees us as photographers, vis a vis the feeds of Instagram and, and YouTube. <laughs> well, that is a subject of hot contention with people and i think the problem with the online community as it were is that you can't do what we are doing so i can see you you can see me we can have a constructive conversation and debate where necessary whereas on the internet you can't do that it very quickly descends into a slanging match mm -hmm. if you see something and you question it uh, which i've had twice actually in the last uh, 6 months of actually going, you know, is this really a good idea to do this? And people are like, oh, go away, shut up, you're being negative. And it's like, no, we're in the middle of a pandemic and um, you've been told you shouldn't be traveling and that off you go, you're traveling from one area to another when you've been told not to, oh, it's my job. Well, if, if it's your job as a landscape photographer, certainly in one case, I know one of, well, one of the photographers, he's not a landscape photographer, in his main job is actually a studio photographer. You think surely you can find stuff in your local area. So I know certainly for me, if if you look into my background of what I do, for example, in 2019 I was on a plane every three months, every three weeks I was somewhere. Amsterdam Schiphol Airport for me was a second home. I was flying through Amsterdam to get my points, not for any other reason. Um, <laughs> um, but it was just to get airline points. But it was becoming a second home. Um, so for me, the last year has been very difficult in some respects of sometimes you kind of think, well, I really, really want to go to the mountains, but you can't because you're under curfew. We're under, we, we have been under curfew here in France. Um, I do actually have a book commission I've been working on, on the Loire Valley, which has given me the, um, the authorization as it were to be able to travel after and before curfew. Um, whereas in the United Kingdom, for example, where I questioned these two guys, one of them was travelled from the northeast to the northwest to go and photograph a waterfall. And it's like, did you really need to do that? Yeah, because it's my job. It's like, but surely you can find something local to you. And if your uh, subscribers, stroke followers are really into you, they will give you the leeway because they understand. Because totally. we're, we are in a worldwide pandemic everybody is under some kind of restriction somewhere in a lot of countries right now although we know things are easing off right now certainly here in france our curfew is ending as of next week i think it is and as of last night they've now said that we don't need to wear masks in the city anymore you do it inside a shop but not in the street which yeah. is good so it means things are changing yeah um, absolutely but i think what happens certainly the last 12 months, as you saw people push the boundaries. And if you questioned it, it was you were leapt on with people, which is, it's like, do you not understand what it is that's going on? Well, and I think the point you're trying to make is instead of just being defensive, like, let's just have a conversation about it. 
Well, it also like, I mean, like when I say local area, I mean, I discovered, for example, early on in my travels around France since August, because for the first six months of the lockdown here, what I did is sort of rejigged my business and actually started reaching out to a lot more people, got a lot of talks, did a talk for Canon UK um, through a photography shop in the United Kingdom, had a few interviews with magazines, had an interview with outdoor photography and stuff. So realigned myself. There's so much that you can do. And then, but also what I started to do is think, okay, well, I can't travel. What can I do here? And then started researching what was in my local area. So I discovered 30 minutes up the road from me as a, a kind of cool abandoned castle. I discovered 30, 45 minutes south of me, um, a really cool abandoned collegiate church. And it was like, wow, cool. And there's just tons of stuff. The, the, there is stuff to find, but people won't. They want to go to the mountains. I want to go to the mountains, but I can. Well, I can now. But, you know, six months ago, and that would have really just pushed the boat. And it's like, I'm not doing it. Right. Well, I think what you're speaking to is humanity in general and entitlement and people just feeling like the rules don't apply to them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've yeah. the, the professional photographers that I've spoken to, the real professional photographers, I would say, um, basically all of them take a dim view of it, all the ones that I've spoken to. They just basically say what they're doing is sticking two fingers up to everybody else and say, I can, you can, nuts to you. And it's like, seriously? Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I could put more stronger language on it. I know when uh, we first arranged this interview, it's like, you know, he said you could use strong language if you want to. <laughs> and uh, it's like I could use such strong language with it. But I don't, I don't want to, actually, because I feel that right now we're in a public forum. Yeah. And still, at the end of the day, if anybody does come across this that ever wants to hire me and happen, because you never really know, is that I'd prefer to still keep a... Uh, you know, a little bit of decorum, let's say, in the conversation. I was going to say decorum as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's just like, but yeah, I think people became really, really selfish. And um, I mean, I'm a member of the National Union of Journalists in the United Kingdom. And I said to them, you know, my work revolves around stock photography. That is how um, I was earning a lot of money. It's kind of diminished a little bit at the moment. Um, and I haven't actually uploaded anything in quite a while <laughs> just because I haven't had time. Um, but it revolves a lot around stock photography. What do I do? And they basically just said, take any paperwork you've got with you to show to the police if you get stopped. Huh. But you are a legitimate photographer. Right. So on my press card, it does say photographer. And I think with YouTube, the YouTubers, um, it's been a case of, well, I do YouTube. It's my job. It's like, no, it's not. You know, you can find other things to do. If you're really a photographer and you're out there doing YouTube, um, you can find stuff to do. I mean, the last couple of weeks on my own YouTube channel, I did a couple of studio things. Totally. And you think, and you, there's, there's just so much you can do from processing to talking about how you plan your work, talking about other photographers, doing like what we're doing now. Yeah. And, you know, getting other photographers on a Zoom call and interviewing, you know, reaching out to photographers saying, hey, you know, I'm, you know, I, like I reached out to you just to think, well, hey, now you know about me. I know about you now. I've seen your imagery. Your imagery to me was really cool, and it's how I love seeing imagery. So, you know, like two like minds get together and have a conversation. There's yeah. so much that you can do, but people just feel so entitled to, you know, oh, I must go from one place to another because and it's like, 
yeah, but come on. And I know, and one of the the other photographers, like I'm going to say, photographers in inverted brackets, I had a conversation with. He said, "What's the difference between my YouTube channel and you having a book commission?" And it's like quite a lot when you're specifically being asked to do something by a publisher. That's quite a big difference between going, "What am I going to do today?" Oh, I'm going to go to on a whim. I mean, I guess it depends on if you actually depend on YouTube for your full income, but there's not a ton of people like that. No, but I. But still, even if you depend on YouTube for your income, if your followers are really loyal to you, they will follow you at the oh, end of the day. And actually, respect. I think that really, with with what's going on right now, people would respect you more for really trying to make an effort and understand that not everybody can go from here there to everywhere, and so therefore, you know, I think people would stick around because they because they could see that you're trying to to do what it is that you need to do so yeah because it's you know it's for example i mean i got stuck in the united kingdom i have a habit of getting stuck to play in stuck in <laughs> i got stuck in the uk over christmas because um i went over for my grand's funeral in november and well, my grand died in november i went over in december two three days before i was due to come back they announced the kent variant and oh, so suddenly right. I was supposed to be flying back through Amsterdam and the Netherlands said, nobody is coming in for the United Kingdom until further notice. So I was just thinking, well, what the hell am I going to do? I need to get back. I need, I've got, you know, all of the stuff that I need to do my job is, okay, I have my camera with me, but all of the imagery that I need to send off, I think I've got 4,000 images that haven't been sent off to a image library. Um, is he, he here in France. And then France, later on in the day, after I changed my ticket to fly home, said, oh, yeah, we're not letting anybody in either from the United Kingdom. So I spent an extra three weeks in the UK oh. under, and didn't have a car. I could have hired a car. I mean, I could have hired a car. I mean, I, what I could have done is actually taken the line of the YouTubers and said, you know what, I'm a photographer. Stuff you. I'm going to go and hire a car. I'm going to go to Wales. I'm going to go to the north of England. I'm going to go to the Lake District and do whatever I want because I'm a photographer, but I didn't. What I did is I stayed in Salisbury and I was staying with my dad. And one of the things that I did is I did, well, I did two vlogs. One of them people seemed to like, which is actually showing different locations where you could photograph Salisbury Cathedral. I just showed some of the places that I know where you can photograph across the rooftops, um, doing a long lens shot, um, stuff like that. And hey, hey, you know, you, you, there's stuff you can do. I had, there's a, a YouTuber friend of mine, well, actually two of them that I took through different things that they could do and one of them was really appreciated the other i don't know if he was going to implement it or not <laughs> but basically we went online and it's like well go on the ordnance survey maps and see what's around you just look over it grid by grid and you'll find stuff that's more local and but people but people will appreciate it you don't need to unless you're being commissioned to go off to all these different places i know it makes for good viewing i mean think about like that's a great youtube idea right like hey, let's challenge ourselves to find something totally unique close to home. And now I'm going to challenge myself to compose it in a way. It's sight unseen, somewhere I've never been before. And there's, this is how I'm going to try to figure out how to do that. Like, That's actually teaching something, someone a new skill other than, oh, yeah. I, I showed up in Patagonia again and it, the light exactly. was amazing. Like, Well, it's like here in France in uh, the original lockdown, we were not authorized, unless absolutely necessary, 
um, last year, you had to stay within one kilometer of your house was the lockdown restrictions here. You could only bypass that if you had to go somewhere that you could not, if you had a business meeting or something else that you could not postpone. And then you had to carry paperwork with you to go outside of that one kilometer boundary. Yeah, You were allowed to exercise for one hour a day outside of your home. I think it was, that was it. So it was really, uh, really harsh. That would never fly here. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know, I know. You can't remember, take away my freedom, Julian. I know. I mean, I, I saw like, uh, I mean, my mum actually lives in Florida and I saw people sort of saying in front of others, it's like, well, you know, you you can't take away my right to breathe properly and I shouldn't be wearing a mask. And oh it's like, you know, it says like, okay. Viral. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I think, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, we, could, we could go on. We could go on and on and on about that topic. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I have my own opinions on what is and isn't useful in that, but you know, it's, at the end of the day, we have to do what we have to do. And I think it's like the vaccines at the moment. I mean, I've had my first vaccine. I have my second next week. If it enables me to travel, to be able to get out there and restart my work properly, let's do it. So, for example, um, you know, I have my second vaccine on the 23rd of June, on the 30th of June, and for the and this first, 1st of July and 2nd of July, I'm an accredited photographer for the Tour de France. Cool. So it enables me to go and do that without having to do a PCR test every time. Yeah, that's cool. awesome. So they were actually saying in there, um, I think it's ASO who organized it, they were saying two weeks ago, um, doesn't matter if you've had a vaccine, you still have to do a PCR test. Yeesh. But they've now changed the rules and said, if you are vaccinated, you don't have to have a PCR test. Good. And now also, as of the 1st of July, there are going to be new travel rules implemented within the European Union with what's called the Green Pass, I think it is, or Green Certificate. So if you've been vaccinated and, you know, it's reciprocal in the other country, you don't have to do a PCR test before flying, which nice. is good. Yeah, I think I just saw they've lifted the restrictions on the United States as well. Going to Europe, yes, that's yeah. coming in. But I don't think it's fully been lifted. I noticed that myself. I'm going to say last night now because <laughs> it's early four in the morning. Yeah, I feel me. like I read it in the New York Times yeah, yesterday. Yes, yeah, so something. So it hasn't been passed, but they are. Um, it, you are. I think you're being put on what's called the white list, which means you will be free to travel to Europe. Um, but it just needs to go through the European Parliament, from what I understand. So it's not quite there, but it's nearly there. Oh, that's good. And I saw just before this interview that the British government are now looking into the possibility of opening up travel, unrestricted travel for those that are vaccinated. And all I can say is good, because at the end of the day, we keep being told the vaccine is the way out. And I think what's really irking people is that they keep moving the goalposts. Yeah, yeah, it's, like, yeah, yeah. it's like, come on, you told us if we're vaccinated, that's going to make the difference. And it's like, yeah, I guess we got to stick to that for sure. So it's like, come on, yeah. let's, let's, let's get on with it. I mean, I've got a potential touchwood commission in Uzbekistan coming up in August, I'm hoping. So, you know, I've got I think to look you'll into make that. It. Well, it's actually a potential of a sponsored trip. Cool. So there's somebody that's interested in my work, loves my work, and is looking and getting me over there and photographing Uzbekistan over 20 days. And um, that person is currently out trying to get sponsorship to get, fly me over. They're looking at who can um, arrange the tour, as it were. 
to enable me to get to different locations and stuff like that. So they're off looking for sponsorship. That's um, super cool. So I'm really hoping that's going to go go ahead. You know, I've been sort of looking at images of Uzbekistan for a while now and thinking that looks such an amazing place for somebody that does architecture. Yeah. You know, you, well, you look at the, the architecture over there, it's just mind-blowing. You know, a lot of what you've been talking about you know, around the pandemic and stuff is having to shift and being more collaborative and changing your business approach. I was hoping we could talk a little bit more about collaboration, um, yeah. more specifically with, with other photographers. And I know, you know, you've had some experience of that. So I'd, I'd be curious, like, what, in your opinion, are some of the pros and cons to collaboration with other photographers? I think it's it's always good to meet other photographers. I mean, I remember when I was a few years ago in um, uh, Scotland, I got I was in Glencoe. They had this huge dump of snow that was part of what they called the Beast from the East, and um, came across another YouTuber and got talking. It's just like, hey, you know, why don't we just do a collaboration now? It's like, hey, yeah, why not? And so I got my iPhone plugged in the microphone from my audio recorder and live streamed a quick collaboration on YouTube. So it's like, well, why not? And because I said to him, I, you know, I'm a working photographer, but and okay, I've got a YouTube channel. It's not huge, but I don't I think mean, it doesn't bother me if they're either big or small. Sure. Um, and I, I have what I have found, because I did meet actually a very prominent YouTuber in Glencoe the following year. And, um, you know, I looked at him and I thought, I wonder if that's, and he's like, oh, it, it was. And, you know, quick sort of conversation said, hey, you know, we should do, you know, I've got a YouTube channel, we should do a collaboration. And his response was, <laughs> yeah. And I thought, do you know what, mate? I think, really think you think you're above where you are. And um, what I do find the negative side is with some people, they think that because they've got some huge following, that just because you haven't, that you've got nothing to offer. Right, and, and it sort of ties into sort of like the social media side of thing is people are looking at how many subscribers somebody's got, how many um, followers on Instagram, and thinking well, just because they've got a huge number of people must mean they're they're great. And you look at what it is they do at times, and you think it's okay. I mean, sometimes my own stuff on YouTube. I mean, YouTube, I find you know it's such a drag at times. I do it because it's sort of broken geographic barriers but sometimes with youtube it's frustrating because um you know you just don't have the time yeah well i feel like i feel like in the united kingdom they don't let you buy a dslr or mirrorless camera unless you have a youtube channel first yeah yeah I mean, it seems just, like everyone who takes pictures has a youtube channel yeah I <laughs> in mean, the uk it's, it's yeah i mean here um you know i had a conversation with you know, another um, podcaster around Christmas time and um, was saying uh, to him that I'm unique in that I'm English living in the middle of France with a YouTube channel. And now when I go out in the landscape here, it's extremely rare that I meet another photographer, extremely rare. So since September, when I started vlogging every single week, sometimes twice a week, I have met, I think it's two photographers. Wow, that time. that's not the way it works here. <laughs> I know. I mean, I've seen images of, you know, those hotspots in the United States and some of those, you know, the national parks and stuff. And here, I mean, people know that France has beautiful landscapes. 
And I met somebody actually in a, in a talk the other day that said, I follow your YouTube channel because you're in France, because you're showing what's in France. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, it's really weird. You just don't meet people or you meet walkers, but you don't meet photographers. Yeah. So where I was with my kids the other day, which was on, it's on the edge of the department of Andra, and you look into a department called Creuse, and you look across this beautiful river gorge across to an abandoned ruined castle. You would think at sunset there would be a line of photographers. There's nobody there. We were the only ones there. It's just weird. It is absolutely weird here. What it's, do you think? What do you think attributes that? Um, is it is it like a cultural thing? Like it's not something that um, the French people value in terms of. I don't Inter- know. Entertainment I think, value, or like, what's the I, difference? I think when it comes to photography, the French, from what I gather, seem to be more attuned to photographers as far as artists than they are in, let's say, the United Kingdom. I think in the United Kingdom, a lot of people look at photography as a hobby, mm-hmm. whereas here, I think because they've had such celebrated photographers like Henri Cartier-Bresson and you know some of the others that my mind that is looked on as a little bit different than in the united kingdom although there's obviously celebrated photographers in the united kingdom it just doesn't seem to be the same Hmm. as here but it does err more towards i found more nature side of photography and portraiture side of photography so landscape photography travel photography i mean you do you will see people for example um i'm looking at the date of my computer if you go to provence in two weeks time you will see photographers because it's Provence. It's the lavender. Sure. So you do in those hotspots, let's say the real big hotspots, you will see photographers. So you will see a line of people in a lavender field. Um, But there's a lot of other places outside of that that people are not seeing. And I'm trying to do that with my photography channel is actually my YouTube channel is, is try to show people a different side of France that you wouldn't normally see that, there's just so much beyond Paris, Provence, the Dordogne, the Alps, and the Pyrenees. There's sure. so much more. I'm curious. I feel like there's a risk and a benefit to doing that because if you had a huge YouTube following, you might attract more people to do that, and then you'd no yeah. longer have those places to. They would, you know, they would be forever changed. Well, I'm, I'm quite mean at times on mine because people say, where is it? And it's like, where is it? Go and research it. Because <laughs> some, some I'm the are, same way. I get that. You know, it, it, sometimes you, you do have this responsibility of footfall. And, you know, you think, do you really tell people where this place is? Um, so, yeah, there is, a, there is a responsibility that comes along with it. Um, you know, I mean, I, I kind of, we didn't, sort of really stick on collaborations. I mean, I've done a couple of collaborations, by the way, just sort of rewinding, by the way, as it were. It's fine. <laughs> kind of, let's just rewind that conversation. It's like, I've done some collaborations. What I mean, I said the, I mean, one of the good things is, is meeting other photographers. And certainly for me, because of where I am, as I've said, you know, sort of intermingling that conversation of going out and not meeting people, that the good thing is, is I'm going out and I'm having places to myself. The bad thing is, is unlike the United Kingdom, um, I'm not meeting people right. in that respect. So that YouTube channel was a way to break the geographic barrier to show people that I was here, that, that I am a photographer, I am doing this as a full-time job and doing it 
Um, you know, you're not seeing everything on YouTube. I'm not giving everything away. Sure. Um, I don't want to because it, it's like, come on, people. You know, I think people expect things handed to them on the plate. Yeah. The negative side I see with collaborations is that um, I find that some people do have a bit of a hidden agenda. Ah, uh, yes. And that they are trying to sort of get stuff from you to then further their own feather their own nest. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing that and I'm just thinking, why are you doing that? Because it's not fair. Um, you know, you're putting other people above me when I've given you lots of information that's gold dust. Why are you doing that? So Yeah, it's I'm- interesting. We I've talked to lots of photographers that have had those experiences here that are friends of mine. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt until you know, it's like they've repeated the behavior over and over again. And it's obvious yeah. that it's a pattern kind of a thing, but I've, I've heard that of a few people here where it's like, they kind of do that. You know, they, they buddy up somebody, they butter them up and, and then they befriend them. Maybe they even like pay them to take them to some place or whatever. And then, and then before you know it, they have their whole business model is yeah. like what you showed them and taught them. And I think, on one hand, I kind of get that in terms of like, for some people, like how else are you going to do it? But on the other hand, you should at least like have a conversation with that person. Like, hey, thanks for this information. I wanted to ask you if it was cool if I did this or whatever. Like, it just seems to be like there's not that mutual respect. No, and it, it, it really frustrates me when people are doing that because it's like, hey, you know what? I mean, I'm, I'm going to take you back to something I used to do in when I was younger, which was martial arts. So I used to do Tai Chi, praying mantis. And one of the things that came out of the Chinese side of way of thinking was before you drink the water, you must remember the source. And people are not doing it. And they are basically trying you, – you see it on YouTube. You can see it where people are just trying to buddy up all the time and they're trying to, to ride off the back of other people's success – to then feather their own nest. And in it, it's kind of like, and I that's why I've steered clear, let's say, the last couple of years of, co- of collaborations a bit, because it's just like, you know, I mean, it, it, I'm not going to say too much because it will be evident where that is coming from. But, <laughs> but it's really irritating because you just kind of think, hold on a minute, you know, you said you were going to be doing this and you're not. You're actually going more towards that why are you doing that and you kind of think how do you broach it um with people but yeah i mean i just you know it it is difficult i mean i am a photographer that does get work which is good you know i'm still getting work so you know i've got a few projects in mind that are coming my way got two maybe three paid jobs in germany um which is good so that's good to be able to travel again very soon a potential of a job in uzbekistan potential of a job in southern Italy, potential of a job in Patagonia, actually, um, either later this year or early next year, and a few other things in the pipeline as well. So, you know, I'm still able to get clients, which is good. But- well, one of the things that always baffles me about what you're describing is those individuals that have those tendencies, they seem to it doesn't seem to ever catch up with them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and it's a pretty small community in landscape photography. And so like people talk to each other and, and you would think that 
if you burned enough bridges that people would just stop wanting to work with you, but that doesn't seem doesn't to be the case. No, it doesn't seem to be the case. It's pretty, you know, again, it kind of just grates a little bit because you just kind of think, you know, come on, you know, you've been helped where you are partly by what I told you and you don't want to acknowledge that. Why? What is the reason behind that? Right. What is it? Is it because I don't fit in your sphere? Is it because I'm not high profile myself now? That because the other person you've now leapfrogged onto has a higher profile. So it's just, it's like, um, I'm trying to think of the phrase now, um, you know, it's, it's social climbing. Mm-hmm. So basically just well, I mean, to it happens climbing. in the corporate world all the time, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, and it's People like. People use each other to get ahead and. I mean, yeah. I mean, I saw it when I was in my last job. Yeah. You know, it's and just it's like. Probably felt disgusting then too. Well, yeah. I mean, I remember in my last job, there's a pension administrator was told I was going into a department with somebody else just for two weeks just to help out and didn't know the job at all, you know, and you think, well, don't really know what it is I'm supposed to be doing and was told that you're supposed to meet the same targets as the people that do know the job. And you're, and so I remember this young girl came over and, um, you know, I just sort of said to her, we expected to sort of do the same level of work. We don't, we sort of don't, we don't really know and said it like that. What did she do? She went to the manager and told the manager and then later on in the afternoon was called in to a meeting to say, what's going on? Why are you questioning this? What's the problem? And you think, seriously, is that what it's like? Right. It's, it's just, you know, you're out to backstab as many people as you can. Right. Wow. And I was really glad to get out of there. Well, and I think in photography, I feel like sometimes it's not intentional to like what we're, what we're seeing. It's, it's more like, that's just how they know how to, what I'm Get finding ahead. with the YouTubers is I wish they would be more honest to say, actually, I do want to be a pro. Mm. Because, you know, it's kind of denied by a lot of people saying, oh, I don't really want to do this as a job. It's like, yes, you do. <laughs> you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it. Why are you doing it? Right. I mean, I feel like if you're putting the pressure on to produce one or more videos a week, that there's a motivation behind that. Exactly. There's a motivation to get gear. There's a motivation to you know, to, yeah. to further yourself in this world. And it's just like, come on, people, be honest as to why it is you want to do this. Right. So I know a lot of people, um, you know, I mean, I got into a furious argument with somebody um, I tend to get into arguments with people. <laughs> of uh, They're complaining on a group that I'm in saying this, like, why is this group sort of not offering this, this, and this? And you kind of think, well, And I I said, look, hold on a minute. I said, look, you know, I can sit here and offer you advice, get into a conversation with you. And if I start getting into a conversation with you and start typing out long things on this Facebook group, then I'm actually stopping my work. Right. And they're like, you egoist. And it's like, no, it's like, hold on a minute. I'm offering you advice. Like you don't don't value my time. Yeah. So I've got my time whereby... I'm having to take time out of my day to then start getting into a conversation with you and go back and forth, write out, you know, stuff that could be there to help you. Which let's be honest, is probably stuff you could have Googled. (laughs) Kind of stuff you could have Googled. I mean, well, that's the thing as well is, I mean, is there is so much information out there. So when I first started, um, just getting to know how to use graduated filters properly was a struggle. 
So right. I can, and now I can, it is. It's probably it's not hard. <laughs> well, I've actually put the information out there on my YouTube channel. But you know what I mean? Like, how do I use a graduated filter? I'm sure you'd get like a thousand results. And well, most of them would the thing is, is something. Well, I did a YouTube video on how to use a graduated filter and actually showing people how to choose the correct filtration and showing how to properly meter to get that strength. Right. Because you see it so often. I've seen a prominent YouTuber use a grad and he pulls it right down over the picture and you just think, and then you see the end result and you look at it and you think, that's horrible. And I remember reading an interview with Joe Cornish, you know, the esteemed um, landscape photographer in the UK. He said, if you're going to use filtration, you must not be able to see you've used it. It must be invisible. Yeah. And you don't, you don't see it in Joe Cornish's work. Well, I mean, he, uh, he's meticulous. I mean, that, that guy lives and breathes landscape photography. Yes. He eats exactly. it for breakfast, he eats it for lunch, he eats it for dinner. I mean... I think again, I, mean, you, I, mean, I remember actually meeting a few YouTubers. We had, I went to Northumberland a couple of years ago and met up with a group of them and got talking to one and said to him about Jay Cornish, Charlie Waite, David Ward, David Noton, and he was like, who? <laughs> and that's, that's interesting in that a lot of people, I mean, I'm not saying it's, it's not wrong at all to be influenced by other YouTubers, but people aren't, again, sort of, scratching beyond the surface so for example i play the guitar that's one of my loves i've been playing the guitar for is it 27 or 28 years now i started when i was 17 i'm now 46 and um i when i started i was listening to megadeth so i went to a concert in 1992 in october 92 went to see megadeth at the paul art center was up front pantera was supporting it was like this is cool i want to do that so that was at a time beyond before the internet, whereby the information wasn't just there. Yeah. So I had guitar lessons. And then what did I do? It's like I was reading interviews about my heroes, as it were, and Megadeth was saying, for example, Dave Mustaine. You know, if you've ever known anything about Dave Mustaine, you know he's an incredible character. Um, his early influences were people like Elton John. And you think Elton John against Megadeth, the two just don't <laughs> sit. Right. But – what I started doing is going back in time and thinking, well, who influenced the people that I like? So I remember reading an interview with Kirk Hammond of Metallica. Yeah. And he was on about Santana, thinking Santana, Santana. Who's this Santana? I keep reading about Santana. Uh-huh. Then one night on BBC Two, late at night, I remember setting the video recorder. Remember those? Um, they had Woodstock. So I videotaped Woodstock, the Woodstock film, to rewatch the next day. Came across a bit of Santana playing Soul Sacrifice. It was like, that's cool. That is damn cool. So my guitar playing went from being very hard, heavy metal, Metallica, Slayer, Megadeth, suddenly then takes a left field turn to Santana. Then it goes to Muddy Waters. And, yeah. also, and But people are not doing this nowadays. They're not going, you know, you asked me before the interview, it's like, would you recommend photographer? Go and, people, go and find Galen Rowell. Yeah. Go and find um, Franz Lanting. Because now Galen has sadly passed away in a helicopter crash, but his work is still out there. So I think his website's been taken down, actually, that was still there a couple of years ago. But there's a lot of books that he produced. He was a National Geographic photographer. Oh, he's an amazing, amazing, amazing photographer. Great writer, too. And a great writer, you know, and he was self-taught like us. Mm-hmm. 
So I think the same with Franz Lanting. Franz Lanting is an amazing bird photographer. You, you mention these names to people now, and they're like, who? Who the hell's that? And you think, come on, just go off and look, just go beyond the people on YouTube. They are not the be-all and end-all of the photography world. But people are blinkered. They they just see the the celebrity of it. Well, I think it's interesting, Julian, because I think what you're describing is and maybe I'm taking, maybe I'm extrapolating this out too far, but I feel like what's behind that is why people are into photography, right? If you're into photography because you think it's a way to become popular and, you know, get noticed on YouTube and get free gear and like it's well, let's, this. Let's, let's, let's rewind that back again to me. I'm going to rewind that back to music. So one of the bands that I loved when I was a kid was Iron Maiden. Now, if you look into the history of Iron Maiden, what they did to build up a following, which is still extremely strong today, is they... um, (laughs) Your camera's gone. Yeah, I'm trying to figure it out. (laughs) Um, What they did is they built a following in the pubs in the East End of London. And slowly but surely, they built up a very, very strong following. That's better. You come back, you've got rid of the boker. They built up this really, really strong following. And that's what a lot of early bands did. But nowadays, you know, you have things, for example, like the X Factor. Britain's got talent. America's got talent. People want fame now. They don't want to put in the hard work, the graft of, you know, all the stuff that I've known has come by trial and error. Nobody's taught me what it is that I'm doing. I mean, I can think of a lot of examples of landscape photographers who – paid their way into fame in terms of like bought a ton of workshops, took a ton of post-processing tutorials, won competitions. You know, they were only in it for like three or four years and then they were done. Like it was like something they, it was like, okay, I did that. I'm moving on. I think the people that are in it for the long game and like want to make it like a lifelong endeavor. I feel like those are the individuals that, you know, take the time to study and, and, and appreciate some of that, some of that historical nuance and, and like yeah. what the different influences are from different people. And, you know, what is it can, if I look at an image from Galen Rowell versus an, an image from Joe Cornish or whatever, like, what am I going to distill that? How can I make that? How can I use that to make my photography better? Yeah. You know, I think that's a completely different approach to the, I just want to get really good, really fast and get noticed and of course, I'm generalizing and painting with a pretty wide paintbrush, of course, but I do think there's something to that. I think I think it's really fundamentally dependent on what it is, what it is, why people are in photography and what they want to get out of it. Yeah, as I said, I mean, I, I suppose my experience is maybe it's been maybe just meeting the wrong people in photography, as it were. <laughs> I, mean, I've got, I mean, I do have um, friends that are pros and been doing it a long time, so. Um, you know, I mean, there's always interesting listening to them and their take on the social media side of things. I just hate it. But I mean, I think, I think about my, my own journey, you know, like back in 2012, I had a full frame camera. I knew what I was doing. I was teaching workshops. Um, I was making some okay photographs. But if you would have asked me who's Galen Rowell, who's Joe Cornish, who's this, who's that, I've been like, I couldn't tell you, man. But I could tell you everything about my camera. I could tell you everything about the lenses I bought. Um, so I think some of it has to do with, you know, where you're at in your journey too. 
Yeah, it is. But as I said, I kind of feel that at the moment, the pendulum has swung. At that time, it was different. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about 2012. 2021 is a very different ball game at the moment. Is that you know companies are looking at influencers to, um, you know, produce work, and they're getting a free ride in, in some respects off of influencers, and it's just like, yeah, you know, and at it's the like, expense of their soul. Exactly, and it's just like, <laughs> come on. Um, so yeah, it's just like wow, you know, I mean, it, it has changed a lot in in the years that I've been doing it, you know, and I. I could have been an early adopter of YouTube, but it's just, you know, the thought, for example, several years ago of going on YouTube was not even there, but also the thought of documenting what it was that I was doing. It's just like, really? Who who wants to watch this? (laughs) Who wants to watch this? Whoever would have thought. I know. Um, But, you know, I mean, YouTube's a funny thing. You know, you put stuff up and, I mean, I used to basically keep tabs on everything. And now I just bake it, shove it up, forget about it. And if somebody writes a comment to me, I'll respond to it. I'll always respond where I can to my comments. Um, but, yeah, I just kind of find that maybe the pendulum has swung too far at the moment with people wanting their five minutes of fame without putting in the hard graft behind it. And it's like, you know, there's – You've got to remember that once you start doing this as a job, it is a job that you are not spending 80% of your time in the landscape. I think I read an interview with Joe Cornish where he said 20% of his time is spent in the landscape. The other 80% is spent doing office work and whatever else. Right. Paperwork. Yeah. Phone calls, emails. Sorry, he gave some kind of split like that. That is the reality. I mean, I've got a problem with copyright infringements. Well, yesterday I was um, at a court hearing over the telephone. Oh, let's um, let's save that for later because I actually want to do a whole thing on that because um, I think that would be a fun little Patreon episode. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean that that's um, you know, but doing the court papers that takes that took half a day to do what's called the skeleton argument and the witness statement to send over to the court. Right. And yeah. I, so so I've got, at the moment, over €60,000 that needs to be recouped. Whew. I mean, that's that's not a terrible problem to have. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, it's not a terrible problem with getting it. Um, so without going too much into all the copyright infringement stuff, I mean, I've had it. people threaten me oh, yeah. for, for catching them oh, yeah. you know, using my work, and it's just like... Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. he's like come on yeah well cool man so last question tell us about your upcoming workshops and tours that you've gone on well i've got a tour of the dolomites um in october in mid-october which is good so i've got a couple of people that are have signed up for that um i was going to be doing a japan tour in the autumn but i don't think japan will be open Mm. in the Mm -hmm. autumn maybe it will be i don't know um, then the next one after that is uh, Glencoe in January next year. So I go there pretty much every year. So that that's coming along quite nicely. Then Norway in February. Um, and then March, a big tour, which is to actually visit the eagle hunters, the Kazakh eagle hunters of Western Mongolia. So I work with a company that's in Mongolia and based in Britain as well, whereby um, they are my ground agent. 
So that's, that's an awesome experience. So I've been to Mongolia twice. It is an amazing place. It's not for everybody, I will say that, because you are going to be taken completely out of your comfort zone. However, if you can stand, let's say, doing the things that you would do on wild camping, on the ablution side of things, then you can do it. Um, and then I'm just trying to think what else is it. Loire Valley. I've heard away from doing a Loire Valley tour, but I feel that now is the time. Of all of the research I've done over the last year to, to properly do it, Tuscany, Provence, um, Vietnam next year, I'm hoping, is going to go ahead. Oh, cool. So, yeah, there's, there's I've always wanted. I've always wanted to shoot Vietnam. There's um, a photographer in North northwest United States. I don't think he's active anymore, but he used to have some amazing black and white photos of Vietnam. His name was Jesse Estes. Um, I don't think he's active anymore, but uh, that was the first time I saw anything from Vietnam, and I was like, whoa. Yeah, I mean, there's some cool stuff over there that, again, yes. um, you know, you, this, yes, there's the rice terraces, but there's many, many other things. You get, so you get the rice terraces in the north of the country. Yeah, I'm, and, I'm thinking uh, of these, like, cylinder pinnacles, like just like a whole, like, I don't know, like 10 square mile, almost like these little miniature mountains just um, stacked I up think against I each other. I know what you're talking about. It's the... the rice terrace not the rice terraces it's the tea terraces it looks amazing yeah yeah i mean i did i got stuck in vietnam actually (laughs) that's another story but um i did the northern part of vietnam and the central part and um the people are amazing if you get to know them so i've got half of my facebook friends are vietnamese a third of my facebook friends are mongolian (laughs) (laughs) it's you know but it's it's really they're really really nice people yeah. And I'm still in touch with my friends over in Vietnam after what happened because you know, I got to know people and came away with an amazing experience. And um, they're very precious, actually, with how people treat the Vietnamese because certainly some of the things I saw when I got stuck there with how tourists were treating the local people was just like, really? Come on. You know, you're, they're not you know, below you. They're equal to you. And, yeah. Yeah, it would probably- uh, that's a big problem with Western societies in general. Is are typically built on this class hierarchy, yeah. and I think it just plays out in that way when you're in a foreign culture. Unfortunately, sadly, yes. I mean, what I what I say during my photography talks is when you go to another place, such as Vietnam, for example, or Mongolia, learn to to speak a little bit of the language. So I yeah. speak bits bits of Italian and Russian. Uh, Mongolian Vietnamese so yeah. you know I, when I had my guide in Hoi An I said to her and this was before I got stuck I said if I'm walking around the market or somewhere else and I see somebody and I say you know how can I you know can I take your picture I said what do I say so by that time I'd learned how to say for example xin chào hello thank you gammon goodbye tam biet and stuff like this and so, sure, so, yeah. so Learning that language, and she said, "Oh, it's easy. You just say toy got te Japan home." I said, "Can you?" I, so I had my, I got my phone, and I said, "Can you just?" I'm going to record it. So I said, "Just say it clearly." And she went, "Oh yeah, easy." So you just say toy got te Japan home. Hopefully, anybody that's Vietnamese is not going. My God, that's awful. But it's something. About, it got me far enough, and I also learned. You know, learning like please. So I remember coming across a lady on the market and thought. Um, kind of really like to learn. I'd really like to take a picture, 
And um, I'd learned how to say good morning, good evening, and good afternoon. Now, they don't say in Vietnam, good morning is chào boi san. They do not say chào boi san. They say xin chào. So I remember find, seeing this lady um, uh, on the market. And I thought, oh, she's got, I'd love to get a picture. She's got a really cool face. Mm-hmm. So I, I went up to her and said, chào boi san. And she looked at me and went, ban, I think it's ban mun yi. What, what do you want? So, <laughs> I, um, <laughs> so I said, Toi ka te Japan home. I can take picture. And so it's like, I can take picture. No. And she went, mm, home. And I went, la mern, which means please. I went, la mern, please. <laughs> and she's like, okay. And then you batted your eyelashes real nice. So, yeah, yeah. And you just, so I did that with a few people. And it's good when you can, when you start learning the language, you can then start to play and then you can start to then, and I know we talked about being above and below people, stuff like that, the class system, but you sort of, you find the level as it were to, to get on the common ground with people. So it wasn't about being um, above them or below them or whatever. It was finding the common ground to talk, to be able to get the picture and, and, you know, just to, Get what and to succeed, so you know it was good to play with the language and, you, and getting to know people as well. And yeah, you know, so it it was good fun getting yeah. stuck in Vietnam. In actually, in the very beginning, it was just like bloody hell. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm supposed to be in Romania on Monday. I've got a job. I was leave, supposed to be leaving on a, I think it was Friday night, Saturday. I think. Well, I can't remember what it was now. I was supposed to fly back and then have a day at home and then fly off to Romania for a tour agent in Romania and then in Moldova, completely missed that job. It was a job that's still waiting for me. And, um, you know, was just sat there going, what on earth am I going to do? And had to phone home and say, I'm not coming home. <laughs> Can you imagine that phone call? Like, right. what, what do you mean? It's like, well, I'm stuck. They won't let me leave the country. So, <laughs> um, and But I, I decided that to make it more interesting, to go, right, let's learn a little bit of Vietnamese. So let's learn to say, my name is Julian. So it's like, I'm just trying to think, Toi ten la Julian, bat ten la zi, what's your name? Where are you from? And stuff like that. So learning that, then um, people could see you're making an effort. Right. And you're not just some some jerk who's there to exploit no. them. <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, for example, there's a... Um, some of the girls that I got uh, friendly with over there, um, I thought one of the things I'm missing is is the atypical picture of a girl in the, what they call the aoyai, which is the long dress, mm-hmm. and then the conical hat. Now, I know it's very stereotypical, but they do still wear the conical hat, some people over there. When they're out in the fields and stuff, it's a great way to protect your head from the sun that's beating mm-hmm. down all the time. So got talking to um, one girl, and she was really cool because actually she spoke quite good English which meant she was then able to help me find locations. And then actually we got the images that were really good. And then the other, one of the other girls I worked with, she's in, actually works in the tourist office. And, um, you know, I said to her, I really want to pay you for the time you spent with me. No, I'm going to make you lunch. I'm going to go, you're going to go and meet my dad. We're going to go to the market. She took me to this market that no tourists, I had no idea where we were going. We were just going through, I was on the back of her scooter going to her dad's place, wherever the hell it was, I don't know. And um, we went into this market, and I remember it now, just sort of going in. I said, she said, oh, we'll just stay there. 
and um, she didn't really speak a lot of English. She's just like, oh, stay there, stay there. So I was like, okay. I said, but can I come in? She said, yeah, sure. So I left my um, helmet on and she said, I'm just going to go and see my mum and get some stuff for lunch. And um, when I walked into the market, people were just sort of looking around and suddenly it's like, hey, hello, hello. And this is like, it was really cool because suddenly, you know, um, <laughs> I guess almost treated like somebody that's, you know, but it was, I don't know, it was such an interesting market, tiny market. I remember seeing these guys and ladies playing a game of cards, which was is illegal. Really, they're not allowed to gamble over there, from what I understand. Oh, okay. And and I was just watching it and thinking, <clears throat> really, really want to get a picture of this, but you know, it's just not. Good <laughs> right. I don't want to go to jail, buddy. This, <laughs> you know, I don't want don't want them to go to jail. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, but you know, seeing that stuff completely off the tourist trail, that because you know, when you when people go to Vietnam, a lot of the time you're getting that sanitized view. Sure. Of the of the main sites, I didn't get to do that. I did initially. That's why I was there. But during the time I was stuck, it I was slowly um, welcomed into their world. Yeah. And so it was really cool to see. You were stuck, but it was like a whole new sense of freedom. It was. Yeah. And actually, when I left, I remember going around to different people I knew in Hoi An. And there was a girl, actually, I'm still in contact with. In, uh, she worked in a bar. And she said... I don't want you to go. And it's like, well, I know, but I, I have to. And she cried. Wow. And it was just like, I mean, I, I don't want to think too much about it because for me it makes me kind of like really emotional because it, it was just like, wow, to think back to that, that people really were like that touched by me, you know, just being there, making friends with them, not just treating them as a spare part. In the tourist office, you know, I got really friendly with them in the tourist office. I went in in the afternoon to say goodbye. They got me a cake. They'd ordered a chocolate cake. And we <laughs> sat and ate this chocolate. And they, they bought this cake that said, goodbye, Julian. We will miss you. We'll come back soon. I can't remember what it says on it. And it was just like, whoa, to have touched people. Yeah. And you, how long were you there? Like, I was stuck there for three weeks. That's nothing. I know. <laughs> That's really cool. So it was just such a, and I know the lady that takes me into Mongolia, she said to me, I never worry when you come over and we're going to families because I know that you just basically get to, you know, just get stuck in as it were. Yeah. And I remember the first time I went to Mongolia. We're, we're in the middle, completely in the middle. When you go to Mongolia and you, people talk about being in the middle of nowhere. You are seriously in the middle of nowhere. We were staying in the park rangers, the park ranger for Iknat National Park. It was a park ranger, his wife, and their young lad. Same age as probably my son. His young lad is out in the dirt playing football on his own, kicking the football around, you know, soccer ball. And I just looked at, looked at him and I saw my son and I put my camera down and said, sod the camera, I'm just going to go play football with his son. Yeah, why and not? That kid has got nobody to play with. Right. His dad is doing, his dad was preparing dinner with his wife. And you think there's a kid there in the middle of nowhere, stuck on his own. He's got nobody to kick a ball with. Okay, he's all, he seems quite happy. He doesn't know any different. Right. It's just kind of thing. For, for five, ten minutes, just forget the photography. Just let's just, you know. Yeah, let's become one with the culture. Yeah. Immerse ourselves. Exactly. And, yeah. and so, yeah. 
So I, I enjoy going to places like that because, um, you know, it's completely different to our culture. Yeah. And I think once you've been to Asia once, they always say that it's like it's never going to be your last time. You will want to just go back and back again. It's just completely different to That's our cool. Western culture. Yeah. Uh, have you been to Asia? I have not. There you go. I'd like to. Yeah, I'd like to. Well, cool, Julian. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it, man. Hey, that's okay. I'm glad uh, the thunderstorm seems to have passed. It's not I can't hear it anymore, which is good. Yeah. We, uh, we had just one little flicker of my electricity. Well, thanks again to Julian for joining me on the podcast this week. It is always great to chat with a passionate photographer who is ga- engaged in the profession as deeply as you are. To see more of Julian's work, visit his website at julianelliotphotography.com. Also, the conversation continues over on Patreon, where Julian talks about his stock photography business, which is surprisingly flourishing. We also discuss his approaches to dealing with copyright infringement and share some stories about how that has gone horribly wrong for both of us. If that's something you want to hear more about, please do support the show by becoming a sustaining member on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash f-stop and listen. Thank you to those of you who already do. You are amazing. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.